It's called Judges. That's the name. The subject and the title are one and the same. Like a book about weather called Weather, or a book about Heather called Heather. Who's Heather? Welcome to God is Open. I'm your host, Christopher Fisher. Today on God is Open, we're going to be looking at the book of Judges, the cycle of apostasy, and then zooming in and taking a look at the story of Gideon, seeing what kind of details are in that narrative. What can we learn about Gideon and his relationship with Yahweh? What, what is his theology about Yahweh? How Yahweh thinks, operates, acts? What's his interactions tell us about his theology? And then what does the narration tell us? What, what's God's actions in the stories? What's, what's God's motivations? How does God move and act? But first, we need to rewind. We need to take a look at the book of Judges, kind of an overview of the book of Judges, because it will set the stage for where we are in this time in Israel's history. We're in the time of the Judges. This is a time after Joshua, where Israel is ruled by a series, a system, a hierarchy of unpaid, decentralized judges. And the idea behind this system is that God is king. Remember when Israel finally wants a king, God says, well, they have rejected me as their king because this system was supposed to work where everyone is following Yahweh directly rather than under a monarchy, which is a later system devised as a failsafe that uh, wasn't originally planned. It wasn't originally wanted by God, this monarchy. So in this time of the judges, the people really turn into a cycle of uh, rejection, punishment, uh, repentance, and then again to the rejection. We'll play a short clip of uh, what's in the Bible and their their brief, colorful explanation of this cycle of apostasy. Right, and so the cycle began. First, the Israelites would forget all about God and start worshiping the fake gods of their neighbors. Then, God would take away his protection and his blessing from Israel, just like he promised back in Deuteronomy. A neighboring king would then come in and take over part of Israel and make their lives miserable. In misery, the children of Israel would call out to God for help, and God would answer. He would raise up a judge, a leader filled with God's spirit and God's power, who would drive out their enemy and free the Israelites once again. The Israelites would celebrate how God had saved them, but then get lazy and go right back to worshiping the fake gods of their neighbors, and the whole thing would start over again. We're at Judges 2, and uh, we're in a time after Joshua had just died. This is the old generation dying out. And the old generation had the knowledge of what God did in Exodus and during during the Exodus uh, in the wilderness, all God's daily miracles that uh, He gave them, His defeating of the people in the Promised Land. All these, this knowledge is gone. The people have died out. A new generation is arising that that don't have experience. They don't have history with God in the same way that the patriarchs did. And so this this new generation they they rebel against Him. And Judges 2.11 reads, And the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals. Jumping down to 14, So the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. This is a pretty common theme within the Bible where Yahweh sees and then Yahweh reacts. The people become evil and God reacts in an emotional way. You know, it's either sadness, anger, confusion, frustration. You see frustration. <laughs> Go back to Exodus 3, Moses' interaction with God. God becomes angry because Moses keeps on continually putting roadblocks in the way of God's plans. And God has to work around. God is consistently thwarted. And when God's plans are being thwarted, when people put up resistance, God tends to get frustrated, get angry. Even in the story of Gideon, we're going to read, 
Gideon understands this about Yahweh and he says, don't get angry, but I'm going to do some more tests just to make sure, just, just to be clear that you're talking to me. I'm not, I'm not quite sure, even though I had an angel appear to me and give me all this information. I just, I just need that little bit, little bit more confirmation. So back up to verse 12, it says they provoke the Lord to anger. Verse 14, God becomes angry. This is people feeding inputs to God. A lot of Calvinists like to think that God can't be affected from anything outside himself. They'll create dependencies. That'll mean God's not simple. That's just not the God of the Bible. That's not Yahweh who, who reacts, reacts to things as they occur. He sees them and then processes that information and that affects them on an emotional level. God in the Bible is an emotional God. The verse talks about God giving Israel over to the plunderers. This is one of God's methods, means of punishment. You know, sometimes in the Bible we see plagues rise up as a method of divine punishment. Direct killings. Uh, a bunch of people are sucked down to hell at, at Mount Sinai for subverting God, for fighting against God, for rebelling against God. There's, there's a tool bag of options that God uses to punish, to uh, correct, to to uh, just, just affect his will. And this cycle of apostasy, God's purpose in these punishments is to bring them eventually to God. God is thwarted in this as well. Again and again throughout the Bible, the entire Bible is the story of man struggling with God. Israel, Israel is uh, struggles with God. This is the story of the Bible. God consistently being thwarted. I know that doesn't play nice to a lot of modern theology, that God is subverted. It's the story of the Bible. It's the plot of the Bible. That's why Jesus is necessary in the Bible as an ultimate uh, failsafe to, to subvert this continual cycle of God being thwarted. Judges 2.15, God is continually against Israel. He's with their enemies. He, he enhances the enemies. He lets the enemies rule over and fight and win against Israel. 2.16, then God raises up judges. Why? Why? Why does he do this? It says in 2.18, Whenever the Lord raised up judges for them, the Lord was with the judge, and he saved them from the hand of their enemies all the days of the judge. For the Lord was moved to pity by their groanings because of those who afflicted and oppressed him. God is moved to pity by their groanings. This is God receiving inputs from mankind and then reacting accordingly. We could, we could touch God's heart. If you look at the Psalms, the Psalms are particularly crafted to move God's heart to pity based on a lot of the language there, the Psalms of complaint, uh, my, my soul is going down to Sheol, I'm being destroyed by my enemies, they're surrounding me, they're, they're going to profane your name, God, all your praise is going to go down the toilet. These are the types of claims that we find in the Psalms that uh, are meant to affect God on a very emotional level. They appeal to God's emotions because they understand appealing to God's emotions can get God to act, it can get God to rise up as a lot of the the psalm the language in the psalms a lot of the the motifs are god turning his face towards israel turning his face towards the righteous rising up taking charge implementing his rules and a lot of the negative verses the negative uh imagery the motifs are, are about god hiding his face god being inactive god being unresponsive god shirking his duty these are the extremes of Israel's idiomatic language that we see in the Bible. 
So, of course, Israel doesn't listen to the judges. It works for a time. Once the judges rise up and pre-Israel, they listen to a judge for the time, then the judge dies, and then they turn back to their ways. And it doesn't work out as God expects. They become more and more wicked, evil. Judges 2.19, but whenever the judge died, they turned back and were more corrupt than their fathers, going out after other gods, serving them, and bowing down to them. They did not drop any of their practices or stubborn ways. They're being stubborn. God is failing in his reproofs of Israel. God is being thwarted. And what does this do? Verse 20, so the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. And he said, because this people have transgressed my covenant that I commanded their fathers and have not obeyed my voice, I will no longer drive out before them any of the nations that Joshua left when he died. This is a reversal of one of God's promises to drive out all the nations before Israel. And this just did not happen. This is a failed prophecy, and it's it's not a failed prophecy. We're like, ah, oh, see, God's been uh, God's prophecies fail. This is a prophecy that has changed based on circumstances changing. Uh, God originally promised to drive out all those people. Israel, they remained bad. They remained rebellious. Uh, they they provoked God to anger, and God he revokes his promise. He's like, I'm not going to drive you to McDonald's anymore. You're being whiny, you know, like you do to your kids. Except for in this case, it's uh, you know, I'm not going to drive out these enemies. I'm going to use these enemies as a tool to test you, to reprove you, to see if you are actually going to serve me. I'm going to leave them in the land despite me promising earlier to drive these people out, Be just because. Because I need a tool. I need something there. You know what? You guys don't deserve this promise be fulfilled. You you guys, you guys don't deserve this promise. Judges 2.21. I will no longer drive out before them any of the nations that Joshua left when he died. 22. In order to test by them whether they'll take care to walk in the way of the Lord as their fathers did or not. They're being used as a tool in order, in order for God to acquire information. God wants to see if these people, if Israel is actually going to serve him for being God or not and using these pagan nations as a tool in that pursuit. God is using them as a knowledge acquiring mechanism, which is great. A lot of times you'll you'll find verses about God doing something, God knowing something. You won't know the mechanism. The mechanism won't be explicit in the verse. And how you know a good theologian from a bad one is the person who just assumes their mechanism into that statement. That's the bad theologian. You have to look at context to see how how something happens. In in the book of Judges, in the book of the Kings, you, you got kings that make, make is the language used, make their people follow false gods. And, and how do they do that? A lot of times they do it by setting an example, setting a trend, setting government policy. These are the ways that they make their people do stuff. It's not like a metaphysical thing. It's not like they're controlling all things. They're just leading by example or through government policy or through just the environment that they create around them, leading their people down astray. Even though the language might seem deterministic, it's just not. The context doesn't support it. 1 Kings 22.52 He did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and walked in the way of his father and the way of his mother and the way of Jeroboam, son of Nebat. Who made Israel to sin? Who's doing it? Is it being predestined? What's the mechanism? What is the mechanism? You see a statement? Ask, what is the mechanism? How? God hardens Pharaoh's heart. How? What's the mechanism? Is it an on-off switch that's in the core of our being? Or is God provoking him through humiliating him, through pride? How? What is the mechanism for what happens?
Uh, it's it, If it's not explicit, just don't assume it. Do not assume your own mechanisms into the text. It's That's just not how language works. It's not like there's fatalistic uh, kings are making Israel sin fatalistically, deterministically in 1 Kings 22, 52. It's not what's going on. It's leading by example. It's, it's uh, leading by atmosphere. It's leading by government policy. These are the mechanisms to make Israel sin not determinism. So you need to look at the context. Context determines meaning. Don't assume meaning into short phrases pulling out of context. It's a, it's a dangerous way to do theology. We get more motivations in Judges 3. Remember, God has motivations. God has goals. God has goals and motivations in his actions. God has purposes. And do those purposes, do they materialize? Does God get what he wants? Judges 3, 1. Now, these are the nations that the Lord left to test Israel by them. That is, all in Israel who had not experienced all the wars in Canaan. He's giving them adversary he's giving them things that they need to overcome so that so that they learn about god and they learn to fear god they learn to trust in god giving them a perfect life and perfect pastures with no problems ever has not worked it will not work because then they they have no motivation to serve god there's reasons for what God does, and those reasons don't materialize. Israel never turns to God fully, never fully puts their trust in God. It starts this cycle of apostasy where God gets so frustrated at one point. He says, I'm not going to do it. I'm not going to save you guys anymore because you guys just keep you just keep, keep rebelling again and again and again. I don't want to do it. And then what happens? They groan again, and they move God. There, there's a lot of emotional response they appeal to god's emotions and god reacts to his emotions this is this is not eternal foreknowledge god didn't eternally foreknow all their responses god's not eternally moved this is in the moment this is a moment by moment reaction to events in real time this is the standard default language of the bible we don't see predestination foreknowledge read into the character of Yahweh in any of these texts. We just don't find that. We find God instead reacting in real time. Now let's fast forward to Gideon. We're at Judges 6.3. For whenever Israel planted crops, the Midianites and the Amalekites and the people of the east would come up against them. You know, Israel would do all the legwork, planting, farming, and then they would just be raided and all their food taken. They, they, are, they are basically... A subordinate to these surrounding nations who just raid them for resources. What's the response? And Israel was brought very low because of Midian, and all the people of Israel cried out for help to the Lord. And when the people of Israel cried out to the Lord on the account of the Midianites, the Lord sent a prophet to the people of Israel. First of all, notice hyperbolic language. All the people are crying out for help from Yahweh, which we know is not true from this story because you still have the Baals and the Asherahs that are cut down, destroyed by Gideon. It's hyperbolic language, which is just pretty generally used throughout normal human speech. This is how people talk. But the people in general are crying out to Yahweh for salvation. And so Yahweh, Yahweh God, he hears them and sends deliverance. He sends someone to answer their prayers. It says this, When the people of Israel cried out to the Lord on the account of the Midianites, the Lord sent a prophet to the people of Israel and said to them, Thus says the Lord, God of Israel, I led you up from Egypt and brought you out of the house of slavery and delivered you from the hand of the Egyptians and from the hand of all who have oppressed you. One thing to notice about the language throughout the Bible is that this is God's primary power act to Israel. This is what's always appealed to when we're talking about 
proof, proof that God can accomplish, God can do things, is the liberation of Israel from Egypt. Very important concept to keep in mind. God's power is not manifest in just that he is God, you know, like Calvinists will say, well, well, he is God, so he must have these properties, and these properties are, he's all powerful, and things like that. No, God's power is proved to people through past acts. God can act. God can do things. You point to those things, and then that's how you say God has power. That's how we know God is powerful to act, to accomplish, because of his past acts. We don't we just don't infer it because God is God. That's that's not how Israelite theology is done. God calls them to account in verse 10. He says, And I said to you, I am the Lord your God. You shall not fear the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell, but you have not obeyed my voice. He puts them on trial. This is happening because you are not faithful to me. Now I'm going to have to come save you guys. Put your faith in me. Let's notice what happens in verse 12. So Gideon, he is beating out wheat in a wine press because he's trying to hide from the Midianites. The Midianites come and they raid and they steal food whenever they can find it. So he has to do it in secret. He has to process his food where he can't be instantly raided or spotted out or discovered. And so the angel of the Lord appears to him and says, The Lord is with you, O mighty man of valor. And this this doesn't feel like it's true to Gideon. Gideon doesn't really believe it because guess what? They are being oppressed. And looking at the language of the Psalms, this type of language is used throughout the Psalms. God is with people when he's active in their lives, when he's doing things, when he's saving them. God is far away. He hides his face. He is hidden when he's not active in their lives, when they can't see any tangible results of their relationship with Yahweh. Even people who are servants of God, close to God, experience this far awayness when God is not active in their life. It's, it's an idiomatic expression nearness, farness, this, these motifs are found throughout the Bible. And so God is with you, O mighty man of valor. Gideon doesn't think so. It doesn't feel like it. God has not stepped in and saved them from these atrocities, that them being raided, uh, killed, murdered, their foods taken by uh, these Midianites. These, these people are just harassing them to no end. And where is God in all of this? Gideon is skeptical. He says, please, my Lord, the Lord is with us. Why then has all this happened to us? And where are all his wonderful deeds that our fathers recounted to us, saying, did not the Lord bring us up from Egypt? He is skeptical. He has not experienced what his ancestors have told him. These stories that came down, he's not experienced it. And, you know, he has no functional experience with God. He doesn't know if God's with them or not. But now the Lord has forsaken us and given us into the hand of Midian. And that part is true enough in the judges that he has given us into the hand of Midian. He thinks that God God abandoned them. God said, you're on your own now. And guess what? Midian, you can do whatever you need to do because I'm not going to intervene. This is God forsaking Israel. And and Gideon's not happy about this. And, and I couldn't imagine why not. Why not that he doesn't like being raided and his, his people killed, robbed, working for months in order to process food that's just taken from him. And the Lord turned to him and said, Go into the midst of yours and save Israel from the hand of Midian. Do I not send you? And he said to him, Please, Lord, how can I save Israel? Behold, my clan is the weakest. In Manasseh, I am the least in my father's house. God likes to do this thing called role reversal, where the weak is uplifted, where his power acts are done through the, the least 
the least mighty, the least powerful. David was not the man of stature that his brothers were, yet David was lifted to ascendancy. There's a reversal of fortunes. The younger often surplants the role of the older. Throughout the Bible, it's just something God likes to do to show his power where he uplifts the weak and he works through the weak to accomplish what he needs to accomplish. And even in the story of Gideon, even in the story of Gideon, God lessens. Gideon has a larger force than what is ultimately used. God has to cull the force to make it a lot smaller. And that way, no one could claim that uh, it was it was Israel's forces, Israel's numbers, which secured the victory. God is purposely trying to set up the facts so that people, it's a PR campaign, just as we see throughout Exodus 32, where Moses talks about God's PR in the eyes of God's enemies. This is a PR campaign. God wants to everyone to know that he works through the weak. And it's him that's doing it. And the proof is in the pudding. The proof is in that the weak people are the ones that are accomplishing what God sets out to do. That is how we know Yahweh is the one acting. Gideon then does what any rational person would do in the situation. He wants a test. He wants a proof that this random stranger... You know, this, this this divine creature, this perhaps this angel who's appearing to Gideon, there's, there's no telltale signs. Sometimes when people encounter angels, they fall down, they're afraid. Uh, there's nothing like that here. It seems like a normal person-to-person -person interaction. So he's asking for a sign, and then this whole testing a miracle happens in which this food is brought out, and, and the angel sets it on fire and disappears, this angel of the Lord. And, uh, you know, is that Yahweh? Is the angel of the Lord Yahweh as per Michael Heiser? Well, maybe. Maybe this is a Yahweh that's appearing to Gideon. And we get this sense in Judges 6.22. Then Gideon perceived that he was the angel of the Lord, Yahweh. When Lord is used in all caps, that's Yahweh in the Old Testament. And Gideon said, Alas, O Lord God, for now I have seen the angel of the Lord face to face. But the Lord, this is Yahweh, speaking directly to him, Peace be to you. Do not fear. You shall not die. Because he's under the same impression that Moses was in Exodus 32. You know, Moses is told that no one's going to see God and live. And so you have to go through this process where you're covered up. You can't see God fully. Seeing God equals death. And this, is, this, is, uh, this fear is averted in this situation. It says, then Gideon built an altar to the Lord and called it the Lord is peace. To this day, it still stands at Ophrah, which belongs to the Abizarites. I don't know how to say that. Abizarites were then led into a part of the story where he cuts down altars to Baal and the Asherah. What exactly is this Asherah? You know, is, is this a uh, this, uh, holy tree? Is this a holy icon that's being pulled down of, of a secondary god? Or is this... Asherah, you know, sometimes the scholars claim the Asherah is, is just an object that's inhabited by the god. The Baals inhabit the Asherah, and the Asherah itself is cut down by Gideon in this text. The people figure out that the altar of Baal is cut down. They approach Gideon's father, who sends him away and says anyone who's going to be contending against Gideon is going to be dead by tomorrow morning. Does he mean that Yahweh is going to kill him in his sleep? Or maybe Gideon's going to kill him all in his sleep? Maybe Gideon, you know, that's a guy you don't want to mess with. He's going to slit your throat in your sleep. We're not quite sure what's going on there. We go on. This is a fleece sign. So Gideon asked for more signs. And there, there's texts in the Bible that you should not test God. 
And what does that mean? It seems to me to mean that, you know, God's just not there for our entertainment. We just don't want to just be forcing signs out of God. And even Gideon kind of understands this concept because he asked God not to be angry with him because he continually tests God to see if God is actually communicating with him or not. Maybe he's hallucinating. Maybe he's crazy. Maybe he doesn't understand God's will. He needs some sort of indication that what he's doing, being God's champion, being God's judge, is actually endorsed by God. And this fleece is is funny. I was talking to this Calvinist who his mom was a fleecer. Like you'd you'd set the fleece out at night to try to figure out God's will and and it, if it rained and it was wet, you know, it, it never was the, this Gideon test where the fleece is wet and the ground around is dry, or vice versa, the fleece is dry and the ground around is wet. No, the fleecing was just like a roll of the dice, and then whatever happened, that's how you figured out God's will. People do these things. Um, it's nuts. It's, it's not what's being depicted here. What's being depicted here is improbable events. Gideon needs a clear sign from God, something that's just not random happenstance, to prove that God's will is being communicated to Gideon. And he does it both ways just to ensure that it's God's will. I like verse 39. He says, let not your anger burn against me. Let me speak just once more. Please let me test us once more with the fleece. Uh, this harkens back to Abraham's interactions with God. If we go back to Abraham talking about Sodom and Gomorrah, he keeps he keeps hedging himself. He says, God, don't be angry, but I'm I'm going to press this a little bit further, press it further, because in their theology, in their idea about how Yahweh operates, his patience isn't infinite. You know, there might be idiomatic language where his patience is infinite, but God's patience can run out. God can get angry. As we see in Exodus 3 and 4, in the case of Moses, God gets angry with Moses He's frustrated with Moses. Moses is putting up roadblocks. And in the case of Abraham and Gideon, they hedge their bets. And they say, God, I understand this. This is annoying. This is infuriating. This is this is annoying. Uh, people can annoy God. God can get annoyed by people pestering him. And uh, they understand it and they hedge their bets. And, put, say, and you know, that, that does a lot. That goes a long way towards alleviating potential emotions. They're like, I, you you hear someone say something over and over again, and you say, okay, I, I understand that uh, this might be annoying, but just one more time, please. I, I would really appreciate you just telling me what you just said one more time because I just I just wasn't catching it the first couple of times. And, and hedging yourself like that is going to alleviate some of their frustration. They're going to understand that you are trying your best. You really want to know what they say. You're re really interested. You just, for some reason, are not, you're not tracking. You're not tracking what they're saying. And, uh, and you, you're appreciative that they're going to give you one more time, even though you and they know it's a frustrating event. It, it's, it's familiarity. It's, it's uh, empathy. I can empathize with what you're going to experience, me doing this again, God. Uh, please, one more time. Judges 7, Gideon raises up an army. There's 22,000 people, and God says, this is way too much. Uh, that, let's call the herd some. And the uh, Lord says to Gideon, the people with you are too many for me to give to the Midianites into their hand, lest Israel boast over me, saying, my own hand has saved me. God is hedging his bets. God wants this to be a successful PR campaign where he gets the credit. He doesn't want other people getting the credit for his activity, his actions, his saving of Israel. Because Israel will then think, well, why do we need Yahweh? We could just do it ourselves. 
And that's not what God wants to affect with this salvation. He needs the credit. He wants the credit in order to turn Israel to him. Does it work? Not in the long run, at least. At least in the long run, Israel doesn't long-term turn to Yahweh as a result. But that's what we're doing here. We're giving people no excuse for not giving Yahweh the credit. They send away the cowards, uh, the people with fear and trembling. You know, that's a good thing to do. If you're going to go into war, you probably don't want those guys on your front lines. Uh, you know, those are the first to retreat to cause panic in the ranks. So buy those guys. And then there's another culling effort. There's the water test, which is very famous. This is where I would have been eliminated because I can't imagine just uh, using my hand to scoop up water to my mouth. That just takes way too long, way too much effort. You just stick your face in the water and then drink. That's That seems to be the easiest and most productive way to drink the water. So I would have been eliminated. And so only the people who are using their hands like cups, those are the ones who get to stay in the group. And then they're down to about 300 people. 300 people drink water in a very weird way. That I don't understand why. This seems to me to be a random culling process. Uh, this, is, uh, this is a way to just limit it without, you know, forcing the the choices to pick all the best men uh, and uh, those are the 300 you're going to use this seems to be random we're, we're going to do this activity and it's going to be a way to randomize the elimination of anyone you have left from the original calling that, that's how it's reading to me these next verses i think are fairly telling and that same night the lord said to him this is yahweh Arise, go down against the camp, for I've given it into your hand. But if you are afraid to go down, go down to the camp with Purah, your servant, and you shall hear what they say, and afterwards your hand shall be strengthened to go down against the camp. God's saying, you know what? You, you might be scared in this situation, but if you are scared, here's, here's some actions you could do so you're not scared anymore. This is not God knowing the entire future. This is God giving options to Gideon so that Gideon can alleviate his fears. The future's open. God doesn't know which one he's going to take. He says, you know, if you're afraid, this is what you're going to do. Notice also the language. God has given the Midianites into his hand. How? What is the mechanism? What is the mechanism by which God gave the Midianites into Gideon's hand? And we learn the mechanism a little bit later. How God affects this. How God makes this happen. And Gideon becomes privy to it. And Gideon, knowing the mechanism, gives Gideon the confidence in order to execute God's plan. Because Gideon apparently is afraid, or he's curious, one of the two. Judges 7.12, And the Midianites and the Amalekites and all the people of the east lay along the valley like locusts in abundance, and their camels were without number. This is another idiomatic, hyperbolic uh, figure of speech. Camels were without number. That means there are just quite a lot of them. You just, you can't estimate that you can't guess it, it's just too many they're without number uh they're they're all that i can see as the sand that is on the seashore in abundance this is just normal hyperbolic language idiomatic language that's used pretty consistently throughout the bible we just we need to be aware that the bible just normally casually uses language that we ourselves use in casual conversation when Gideon came, behold, a man was telling a dream to his comrade, and he said, Behold, I dreamed a dream, and behold, a cake of barley bread trembled into the camp of Midian, and came to the tent, and struck it so that it fell, and turned upside down, and the tent lay flat. God is mocking these people. God is saying, I'm going to defeat you guys with a loaf of bread. This is causing fear. This is causing confusion. People are getting these weird nightmares of losing. He's causing 
disarray, de demoralizing the enemy. Moral, morale, morale, morale in war is incredibly crucial, and it turns the tide of battles. A small force with pretty strong resolve can defeat a larger force with very small morale. People who run and retreat and cause confusion in their ranks. And it's better to have an elite experienced uh, high stability force than it is a larger unwieldy and low stability force. And his comrade answered, This is no other than the sword of Gideon, the son of Joash, a man of Israel. God has given into his hand Midian all the camp. God is propagating the people. God is, is sending rumors and flooding them with insecurities. This is the mechanism by which God has given the camp into Gideon's hand. And as soon as Gideon heard the telling of the dream and its interpretation, he worshipped, and he returned to the camp of Israel and said, Arise, for the Lord has given the host of Midian into your hand. This is the confirmation that he needs, that even his enemies are declaring that uh, they are going to be defeated by Gideon. And that goes a long way. Uh, dreams are a very interesting feature throughout the Bible, how they, how they come to pass and, and how they're depicted. Not always are the dreams one-to-one -one correlation. For example, in Joseph's dream, his mother's bowing down to him. But, but by the time he becomes royalty, where people will be bowing down, his mother is already dead. It's not necessarily one-to-one -one correlation with the future, but dreams do tell us something about the future. Often, often they do. Often they're foreshadowing. Often they tell us, what will happen. But what is the mechanism? What makes those things happen? Is it determinism or is there some other mechanism? Is it is it magic? Is it God just forcing things, predestining them through through pretty detailed act? And how are the how do how are the dreams? How how do they work? How do they function? Who implants the dreams? Is this just a property of the universe? Dream dreams are very dreams are very powerful in the ancient world. They they put a lot of stock and credit into dreams and the interpretation of dreams. You really don't see in the Bible dreams that don't have meaning, dreams that come about and are just normal, like you and I dreams, where we're, I, may, I might be dreaming about sci-fi stuff that, you know, sci-fi stuff is never going to happen. And uh, it's just propagated into my mind. Maybe I watch a movie and fall asleep, and my dream is about something wild and crazy. And it has no meaning. But in the ancient world, their dreams tended to have meaning as recorded in the Bible. That, that doesn't mean like all dreams everywhere in the ancient world did have meaning, but the ones which happened to be recorded, those ones had meaning. So it seems like Gideon comes up with a plan on his own to cause mass confusion, chaos, and to get uh, the Midianites killed, for them to kill each other. And he, he does like a psyops campaign in which they, they surround the camps, they break pots, and they start yelling Gideon's name. And then the people are going to panic and rush and fight each other and d cause disarray. So Gideon and the hundred men who were with him came to the outskirts of the camp and in the beginning of the middle of the watch, and they just set watch, and they blew the trumpets and smashed the jars that were in their hands. Then the three companies blew the trumpets that broke the jars, and they held in their left hands the torches, and in their right hands the trumpets to blow, and they cried out, A sword for the Lord and for Gideon. One thing about the small force is that the enemy is not expecting an attack by a small force. They're expecting this massive invasion. They're hearing all this smashing, all this, these trumpets, all these shouts from all around the camp. They think they're being invaded. This is a PSYOP campaign crafted by Gideon because it seems like he has inside knowledge of the camp and, and their morale and their, their disposition.
Gideon defeats his enemies, and of course, he's offered, offered the scepter. He's offered to be their king. Judges 8, 23. Well, we'll start with 22. Then the men of Israel said to Gideon, Rule over us, you and your son and your grandson also, for you have saved us from the hand of Midian. And Gideon replies this, I will not rule over you, and my son will not rule over you. The Lord will rule over you. In the series, in the, in the system, in the government of the judges, God was king. The judges were just ministers. They were menials that were supposed to be serving under God. The people were supposed to report directly to God. God is subverted in Samuel by instituting the monarchy. They have not rejected you. They have rejected me, says Yahweh. Anyway, some takeaways. First of all, God is thwarted continually in the book of Judges. God wants something to be done. It doesn't happen. God has to use mechanisms and means to affect his will. And his will, even if it is affected, it doesn't last long. It lasts maybe as long as the judge that he rose up in order to save Israel and return Israel to him. God is responsive. God has emotions. God's emotions can flare up based on real-time events. God responds in real time. God experiences things in real time. And uh, God, God can be moved. God's heart can be changed by the groanings of the people. People can reach out to God. People can affect God. People can move God to do from to make God do what He's not otherwise expecting. God said, "I will no more save you." The people cried out in pain and frustration and oppression. And then God said, "Okay, I, I will." I will not do what I just said I wouldn't do. I said I wouldn't save you anymore. I, I'm fed up with you. I'm done with you guys. I, I will reverse that and I will save you. He raises up Gideon and Gideon questions God. He, he tests God to see if God actually is powerful enough to save, if God's actually giving him the authority to save Israel. God communes with him directly. He talks to him. There's conversations between Gideon and Yahweh and the angel of Yahweh, whoever that is, whatever divine being is present in the angel of Yahweh. Maybe that's a Jesus figure, an avatar figure. It is it itself a Yahweh as maybe a Michael Heiser might claim. Uh, it could be. This is who God is. God works through messengers, avatars, angels. He has interactions with people, conversations with people. He explains motivations. He has PR concerns. He cares about his image. He cares about uh, his people, Israel. He, he'll, he will reverse what he says he's going to do if Israel calls out, if they they're being persecuted in frustration. Israel's theology is one in which God can abandon them. Israel's theology is one in which God can shirk his duties. Israel's theology is one in which God does not have to be actively present in their lives. And it, it feels like an abandonment. Gideon thinks God has abandoned Israel when God is not actively thwarting their oppressors, when God is not actively overthrowing the enemies of Israel. God, in his interaction with Gideon, he God believes the future is open. God doesn't quite know what Gideon's going to take, if Gideon's going to take his evidence or not, if if the Midianites are delivered into his hand, if Gideon's fearful, if Gideon wants to go down to the camp. You know, those are options for Gideon. God God doesn't, it's not like the future's set and there's only one possibility and God knows exactly what Gideon's going to do. The future is open. God delivers. God forces the Midianites into Gideon's hands. He makes it happen. And what's the mechanism? God uses propaganda. God uses fear. God uses 
morale. God uses uh, Gideon and Gideon's intelligence, Gideon's resourcefulness in order to accomplish his will. This is how God normally acts in these mechanisms. God's actions are mechanistic. God uses innovation. God uses his knowledge of people, how people act, how people react. This is how God normally operates. It's not in this Calvinistic sense in which everything is predestined from all eternity. God is micromanaging every single detail. No, God works around people who consistently thwart God. But God works around their thwarting of God in order to accomplish his will. This is what we read in the Bible. This is the story of the Bible. Anyways, thanks for listening. Uh, questions, comments, put that down in comments section on YouTube. Uh, I'll start a thread on God is Open and uh, love to talk to you. Thanks. Bye.